0: A few days after recording this podcast, IPES food members stepped down from roles they held within the UN Food Systems Summit process. The discussion that follows helps to explain why. Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Kustane, the Chief Executive of FarmWell. This year's UN Food Systems Summit is being seen by many as an opportunity to define the future of food. The summit may also be the launch pad for a new science and policy interface modelled on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. Now, there's no question that policy-relevant scientific assessment of food systems is important, but several science policy interfaces already exist, not least the high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition that serves the UN Commission on world food security. So do we really need an IPCC for food? Shouldn't we simply better fund and better utilise the mechanisms we already have? I'm joined by the authors of an IPES food report that addresses these questions and which argues that the Food Systems Summit is part of a broader battle over what food systems should look like and who should govern them in the future. Jennifer Clapp is an expert in global food security and sustainability from the University of Waterloo in Ontario. She is also part of the UN's high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition and an expert panellist for IPES Food. Molly Anderson is a specialist in hunger, food systems and multi-actor collaborations for sustainability for Middlebury College in Vermont, USA. She's especially interested in food system resilience and human rights in the food system and Molly is also an expert panellist for IPS Food. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Molly, perhaps the best place to start is with some recent history. Where is the idea for the UN Food System's it come from and what's it trying to achieve I think we have to go back to 2019 to really understand that in
1: 2019 the United Nations signed a strategic partnership with the World economic Forum which is made up of the thousand largest corporations in the world many people look to this partnership as the real impetus for the summit and claim that the summit is simply a continuation of WEF's global redesign initiative, which was launched several years ago, and its great reset initiative to substitute corporate governance for state-led decision-making. Officially, the summit happened because the Rome-based agencies, which are the Food and Agriculture Organization, the International Fund for Agricultural Development and the World Food Program, got together with UN headquarters and decided that something different was needed to meet the Sustainable Development goals by 2030. In particular, we have seen that the world has been sliding backwards on Sustainable Development Goal 2 to end hunger since 2014. And especially with the onslaught of COVID-19 and how wealthy countries are blocking access to a vaccine that would serve poor countries, hunger has gotten much worse. The latest report of the state of food security and nutrition in the world was just released, and it said that between 720 and 811 million people faced chronic undernourishment in 2020, which was 118 million more people than in 2019. Now, going back to the objectives for the summit, overall, they're to help us meet the Sustainable Development Goals, but specifically to generate significant action and measurable progress toward the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, to raise awareness and elevate public discussion about how reforming our food systems can help us to achieve the SDGs, to develop principles to guide governments and other stakeholders that are looking to leverage their food systems to support the SDGs, and finally, to create a system of follow-up and review to ensure that the summit's outcomes continue to drive new actions and progress.
0: So the way that you framed that, it's about trying to address the SDGs and deliver on the SDGs But because of that sort of driver coming from the World Economic Forum, it's almost as if the way that you seem to be describing it is as if there's almost a a corporate land grab over states, over the future of food systems.
1: I think that's fair to say. And the way that the summit is actually rolled out has shown that corporate grab over states. And it's been widely criticized because of that.
0: So where's this idea of an IPCC for food come from?
1: Well, it originated... A long time back, the first time we saw any mention of an IPCC for food was in a paper that was published in 2015. But the idea has been picked up and embellished and distributed through a powerful network of people who are closely interconnected. It's been repeated over and over. We are sure to see it coming up in the pre-summit in just a few days. And it has seemed to gain weight the more it's been repeated.
0: Jennifer, I'm interested in you know, why there is concern about the IPCC type body for food systems? Because plenty of people would say that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has been a good thing. It's allowed an aggregation of climate science, which is essential if we're to address the global warming crisis that we face. So, why is there this concern about an IPCC type body for food systems?
2: Right, it's a good question. And first, I just want to say that science policy interfaces are, of course, very important. And just like it's useful to to aggregate climate science to inform policymaking in that uh, issue area. It's also important to have independent, impartial, and solid evidence backing up food policies, evidence that is viewed as legitimate by all stakeholders. The issue with the proposal that's likely to be put forward in the Food Systems Summit for a new IPCC for food isn't so much about the idea of having a strong intergovernmental science policy interface at the global level for food. The concern rather is that the articulation of this proposal has been repeated many times, but it's consistently failed to recognize that there already exists a strong independent intergovernmental science policy interface for food. And that's the high level panel of experts on food security and nutrition, which we call the HLPE for short. And the HLPE basically is the science policy interface at the global level for the Committee on World Food Security. And the Committee on World Food Security is widely viewed as the most inclusive and legitimate intergovernmental forum for food policy coordination at the global level. So the concern about introducing a new science policy interface, it just raises a whole bunch of concerns. And I, maybe I'll just briefly mention two areas where there are some concerns. One is about the governance landscape for food security and nutrition more broadly. It's not clear whether it's seeking to replace the HLPE. And it's also not clear to which governance body it we'll provide advice. And these uncertainties raise uh, bigger questions, such as is the move really an attempt to displace the Committee on World Food Security, which is the key global governance body for food policy? Is this a strategic move to change the governance landscape for food security and nutrition and and potentially uh, replace it with a new multi-stakeholder approach that privileges the interests of industrial agriculture rather than the interests of a wider group of stakeholders? And, And that's a concern because the CFS, as I mentioned, it's seen as an inclusive and legitimate body, And so is the IPCC for food proposal trying to displace that body? And then the second set of concerns focuses really around questions of process that are likely to be embodied within this proposed panel. And it's really not clear whether this proposed um, IPC for food would actually be inclusive of stakeholders, including civil society and the private sector. Earlier proposals cast some doubt on the extent to which that inclusivity would be built into the panel. And also there's nowhere in these proposals have we seen really a recognition of the importance of indigenous and traditional knowledge as being relevant to evidence-based assessments, scientific assessments for food systems. So really there's these two big concerns about governance landscape more broadly and then process within this proposal. Panel. Those concerns raise the really big question about whose interests uh, will this new body actually serve. And that's why a number of analysts as well as civil society actors have been actively campaigning over the past month against this uh, proposal of a new IPCC for food. And instead, they'd like to see the high level panel of experts on food security and nutrition, which is interlinked with the Committee on World Food Security, to be strengthened rather than replaced.
0: You've both said that large corporations and technology companies have too much power or appear to have too much power in the food system summit process. Why is that a problem? Is there not a place for technology and providing solutions? And can't big companies deliver change faster if they're persuaded or mandated to do so?
1: That's a good question, Finlow. And I think a lot of people would look at it that way. But the basic issue is that large corporations and technology companies are structured to make profits, not to provide public goods or to achieve human rights. They are sometimes mandated to make profits if they're a public company, if they're owned by uh, shareholders. The ways that corporations and technology companies are intervening in the food system, have actually been very damaging. And we could see a continuation of that if they gain even more power. For instance, they're damaging the environment through producing and selling pesticides and synthetic fertilizers and other products and equipment that emit greenhouse gases. They're damaging communities by exploiting or underpaying labor and shortchanging farmers and fisher people. And they're damaging human health by producing and marketing foodstuffs that are killing us by making us fat, by giving us diabetes, by giving us other diet-related diseases. Corporations have become increasingly concentrated in every food system activity, from seed production to food retailing over the last few decades. This has been well-documented, and as their power has grown, they are increasingly trying to influence politics at the national and international scale, whether that means supporting politicians who are opposed to regulations that protect the environment and human rights, fighting labels on genetically modified products, even when the public says that that's what they want, or pushing the U.S. government to force Mexico to accept imports of Roundup and Roundup Ready seed. That's an issue that's going on right now. Of course, technology has a place in solutions, but technology isn't all about GMOs and digitalization which is the kinds of things that the the corporations that are involved in the food system summit seem to be interested in. Technology that saves people from drudgery, that's widely accessible, and that's owned by people is a very good thing. But when the technology is owned and controlled by a corporation, and when it squeezes out more affordable and accessible options, that's not good at all. For instance, in the United States, John Deere tractors that farmers aren't allowed to fix, when they break but they have to pay a licensed dealer to do the repairs. That's not a good thing at all. Corporations are generally striving for efficiency, so they might be able to deliver change faster. But if it's not the change that people want that addresses people's needs, it's not worth much. If the change is just something that allows the corporation to make more of a profit, yet often it's building on research that's done at the public expense, then people are going to resist it. And that's what we're seeing with the summit.
0: So is it- perhaps less to do with the technology itself, more about the corporations or the patent holding for that technology and how corporations wield power associated with that technology. Exactly.
1: And we're seeing them uh, moving into this governance space more and more, which is why control by interests that are supporting corporations is there such concern in this new proposal for a science policy interface.
0: Jennifer, you're a member of the UN's high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how the HLPE works and where there might be some room for improvement.
2: The HLPE, I should stress, is just one of a number of science policy interfaces that address food systems and food insecurity at the international level. But as you said, it's the main intergovernmental science policy interface, which means it directly interfaces with an intergovernmental governance body in the Committee on World Food Security, which is a UN committee. And the HLPE uh, responds to requests from the Committee on World Food Security for scientific assessment on key questions. And it also undertakes assessment on critical and emerging issues. So really the body serves as a ready expert panel that can provide that kind of policy advice that's based in credible scientific evidence through its kind of assessment process. And the way that the HLP goes about that assessment process is uh, highly transparent and inclusive. It involves stakeholders throughout the entire process. Uh, Stakeholders are openly consulted at the scoping process as we're defining how we're going to approach particular topics. They're also um, participating as we do surveys on what are the most important critical and emerging issues out there. And then stakeholders are also invited at various stages of the drafting process of the reports from the zero draft to the first draft, and drafts also undergo rigorous scientific peer review as well before they're published. Throughout this process, the HLPE really strives to take an even-handed approach when it comes to controversial issues. Uh, So, for example, with respect to agricultural trade or new technologies like uh, gene editing, for example, and tries to present policymakers with a full picture of the nature of any disputes and the various sources of evidence on different sides of an issue so that policymakers can make better decisions. And the HLPE also takes effort to incorporate and welcome different kinds of knowledge into that assessment process, including indigenous, traditional and farmer knowledge. And this is important because especially in the area of food and agriculture, where uh, farmers have been the primary and, and indigenous peoples have been the primary innovators for over ten thousand years. For us to not take that knowledge and information in into account would be would be problematic. So we really we really try to do that.
0: And there isn't yeah. a kind of hierarchy in there in terms of where that information is coming from. You you don't look at a uh, information that comes out of I don't know, for example, uh, Oxford University, and say that's more important than than information that's coming from an indigenous community.
2: We take all information and and knowledge that we can. And it's not like there's a specific hierarchy because in many ways, the only way we will get some of that information that's, that's, um, knowledge based on Indigenous knowledge and traditional and farmer knowledge is going to come from our consultation processes. And it's not going to be published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. So we we really need to take all of that knowledge into account.
0: And what about the improvements, Jennifer? Is there room for improvement?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, as with any organisation, there's always room for improvement. And the HLPE has constantly been thinking about and working towards ways to improve what we do. You know, one of the areas, for example, is that the HLPE is set up and managed data to respond to requests from the Committee on World Food Security in terms of what topics it focuses on for its assessment reports. So that setup makes it a bit awkward for us to undertake our own assessment initiatives. And a key example of that is the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on food security, as Molly mentioned. It was difficult for us to just say, oh, we're going to write a report on COVID-19 and food security, but we did do it. We worked with the CFS to facilitate that request for us to do that work because it was urgent and important. And so one of the areas we'd like to improve upon is to give us more freedom and scope to do that sort of thing when emergencies like pandemics come up. And we'd also like to be able to do more work in terms of uh, monitoring the policy uptake of Committee on World Food Security recommendations to its members. So the way the way it works is that the HLPE provides recommendations to the Committee on World Food Security for their consideration. And oftentimes those recommendations then get discussed in the CFS and then they become CFS recommendations to its own members. But it's it's been difficult to monitor how many countries have taken up those policy recommendations, what kind of experience have they had. And a lot of this has to do with basically the resources available to collect that kind of information. But we'd really like to be able to do that. And we're also very very open to doing more data-based assessments. In fact, we're undertaking a report right now on data needs and challenges in food security and nutrition. So those are some areas I think that could be improved upon, but some of the reasons that that's been difficult for us is because we operate on a very small budget. We operate on voluntary contributions from government members of the Committee on World Food Security. And so obviously a bigger budget would allow us to do some of the things that those, you know, those promoting this idea of an IPCC for food, they've got really big agenda that they want to see. They want to see modeling and analysis and all of this kind of stuff but that requires a big budget. So if this new body is set up, that could actually drain resources away from the existing processes. And from the perspective of the HLPE, we think it would be a more effective use of resources to bolster what the HLPE is doing and bring on some of those issues that maybe the proponents of an IPCC for food would like to see, like more data-based uh, assessments. Because otherwise, it, it risks fragmenting global food security governance exactly at the moment when uh, the pandemic is raging, hunger is rising, et cetera. It seems it would make more sense to not reinvent the wheel, but to strengthen it instead.
0: One of the problems I've noticed with the IPCC, you know, in the time that I've been working around the climate science community, is that it delegates responsibility. It aggregates science, but then it leaves it to the UNFCCC to come up with policy, even when member states are actively looking to the IPCC for advice and guidance. It sounds from what you're saying as though the HLPE on food security and nutrition is more actively involved in policy questions.
2: Well, the... The um, HLPE definitely is geared towards providing policy recommendations for members of the Committee on World Food Security. Uh, But it is important to stress that science policy interfaces, their job is really to provide those policy recommendations based on scientific evidence and to policymakers who are typically governments. So we do, you know, just as the um, IPCC serves the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the HLPE serves the Committee on World Food Security in that way. But it is ultimately up to governments to make policy. And yes, it's frustrating that politics and economic interests often get into the way, but it's ultimately up to governments to take those decisions.
1: If I could add, after the HLPE comes out with its policy recommendations, then there's a long drawn out negotiation process where member states decide whether they are going to accept those policy recommendations. And frequently they don't. So science policy interfaces have limited powers. They can make the very best policy recommendations, but if a a government doesn't pick them up, then you're left with the problem.
0: And if you've got a long drawn out process while governments are discussing it, then you know potentially the science could have changed in the interim. Molly, let's interrogate this issue of technology just a little more. I'm interested in the way that tech is seen as the solution to everything. For example, in tackling climate change, governments put a lot of faith in future techno fixes. But the same seems to be true with food systems. Instead of adopting solutions like agroecology, people seem to want to get rid of livestock and grow meat in Petri dishes. Why is that? Why are technical fixes so attractive? Well, what you said
1: about how it's a way to postpone real decisions about the underlying problems, that's part of it. But another issue is that technical fixes promise to fix a complex problem in a very simple way. The food system is complex. The issues and the challenges in the food system are complex. They really don't lend themselves to simple solutions or to silver bullets like techno fixes. For a policymaker, growing Growing meat in petri dishes may sound much easier than regulating the livestock industry. We can have our beef, we can also have a clean environment, and we don't have to lock horns with the livestock industry. But the problem is that these techno fixes won't address the underlying problems of inequity, of power imbalances, of unchecked greed, of colonization, of pollution, the kinds of issues that are really underneath these big food systems problems.
0: Just to take that example a step further, if you're growing meat in Petri dishes, then these patents are going to be, again, owned by companies that are then becoming very powerful rather than having millions of small-scale farmers around the world earning their livelihoods from producing the food that everyone eats. So again, it's about moving that power away from people and into the hands of corporations, which is the challenge that we keep talking about throughout this podcast. That's right. Clearly, we need a widespread transition from industrialized, and intensive models of agriculture to agroecological systems. But do you think the chief barriers in that transition are systemic or psychological? And how do we overcome them? It's a funny way to put
1: it, Philo, because I would say that any systemic problem is also psychological, in that there tends to be a, a narrative that supports the one-size-fits-all solutions that are proposed for systemic problems. EPAS Food actually did a, a Study back in 2016 from uniformity to diversity that identified eight different lock ins. And I would add a ninth. I think we need to revisit that study. And the lock ins that we identified at that point were things like path dependency. Whole societies get started along one path, and then people are invested in that path. The researchers are invested, the farmers are invested, the capital is tied up in certain kinds of infrastructure. So that's one lock-in. Export orientation is a second one. The expectation of cheap food, which you might say is a psychological problem, but it also gets tied in with systemic solutions that provide that cheap food, whether there's subsidies to the companies that can provide chicken at a really low price or permission to the meatpacking companies to keep workers on the line, even during COVID. That's all serving this expectation of cheap food. Compartmentalized thinking among policymakers, short-term thinking among policymakers. They're looking forward to the next election and not looking to real long-term solutions. The Feed the World narrative, which has served a lot of the big grain distribution companies, the, the big corporations that are involved in moving food around the world. It's this expectation that the industrialized world is going to be feeding the poor world instead of allowing and enabling the poorer countries of the world to feed themselves. And then the measures of success that we use. And finally, all of these things serving this concentration of power in corporations. And the ninth lock-in that I would add is money. The companies that have been getting getting a lot of money out of the food system want to continue getting a lot of money from the food system. And they're not open to the kinds of solutions that would disrupt the power relations that we have right now.
0: It's such an enormous challenge, isn't it? Because as you say, these things are connected. You've got money and systems and functionality, contracts, the psychology of whether people feel able to change. Jennifer, it strikes me that governments also have a fixation with funding inputs and that part of the challenge is that we need to move to a system where we focus much more on outcomes. For example, quality nutrition improved soil health and good water management rather than simply paying to stick a fence in or stick a pond or a hedge in, which may or may may not deliver the outcome that we want to see. So how do you think we can change that paradigm, especially when the things that we know in inverted commas about how to manage land well from indigenous cultures or the experience of agroecological farmers aren't always well researched or codified by the scientific community? Because it's only relatively recently that we started asking better questions about our food systems.
2: You're exactly right that indigenous peoples and agroecological farmers have a wealth of knowledge to bring to our understanding of how food systems can can be made more sustainable and not just ecologically, but also socially uh, in terms of their provision of uh, equitable livelihoods. Yet at the same time, there's far less research funding that goes into these areas to learn the lessons from traditional and agroecological farming compared to research, for example, in high tech initiatives like gene editing and digital farming and other technologies that support an agricultural industrial model. Part of the reason for this is the fact that public research, which really should go towards public goods, such as improving our knowledge about making food systems more sustainable, that public research funding has been diminishing over in recent decades, while at the same time privately funded uh, agricultural research has been on the rise in recent decades. So this this kind of shift in research funding and availability and how much public research is being undertaken has really shifted the balance in terms of the kinds of research questions that tend to get asked uh, and end up in the scientific literature. So definitely, I would say that more public funding really needs to go toward. Uh, research into agroecological farming systems and indigenous food systems so that we can learn lessons for sustainability rather than focusing on these sort of industrial kinds of models.
0: There seems to be a challenge. There's much greater scrutiny than perhaps ever before on government treasuries. And it's very difficult for governments to step out of that sort of accountancy model that they've got themselves into, where they have to justify every single cent or penny that's spent and move into, uh, you know, some of these areas where when you're focused on outcomes, you're not paying for specifics to be put on the land, you're funding farmers to deliver something which is slightly more nebulous. And that must be a real challenge for governments.
1: It is. And often the the metrics of success are not there. For instance, with carbon sequestration in soil, it's really hard to measure how much carbon is in that soil and for how long it is going to be sequestered, we know that once the soil is disturbed, the carbon will be released again. Yet there's all this talk about paying farmers to put carbon into soil without really understanding what's involved there, how long it's going to last, how good a solution it is, which soils it works in. So uh, we, we don't have enough data in that case to really be able to go by the outcomes.
0: And if we take that as an example, then perhaps rather than trying simply to deliver a single outcome, we need to combine outcomes together because we know that good soil health is the foundation of food and it's the foundation of adaptation safety in the face of climate change. It can prevent flooding. So carbon perhaps is one of the outcomes, but an increase in organic matter would be another. Infiltration rates, that sort of thing. So you're combining these outcomes focused around soil health rather than just getting too wrapped up up in one individual outcome.
1: And that's exactly why agroecology is such an appealing systemic solution, that it has so many positive outcomes. The report that was done by the HLPE in 2019 on agroecological and other innovation showed that very clearly. When you compare agroecology to things like sustainable intensification or climate smart agriculture or precision agriculture, you get so many more benefits from agriculture Ecology, you get decent livelihoods, you get better nutrition, you get soil health. And I agree with you, Finlow, so much comes down to soil health. We're beginning to understand that and the science on soil health and what that actually means is rapidly uh, burgeoning. But agroecology can provide that, but also provide all these other benefits.
0: I want to talk about the idea that food is something that everybody should have access to, regardless of whether the process of producing that food is owned by a corporation or produced by you know, a small-scale smallholder um, in a country that's relatively powerless in, in international terms. Now, you've said that food should be considered a human right, Molly, and it's clearly not. It's seen as a commodity, a profit centre. How do we change that?
1: People who are working in civil society and UN organisations, Organizations have put a lot of time into that question, Fienlo, since food was first recognized as a human right in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What that means for food to be a human right has been clarified in many different documents since the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In 2004, the right to food guidelines were adopted by the FAO, and these are formally known as voluntary guidelines on the progressive realization of the right to adequate food in the context of national security. These explain in detail what a state needs to do to move toward respecting, protecting, and fulfilling the right to food. So it's Very clear. It's all laid out. And there are great examples around the world of how countries have implemented food as a human right. We've seen that even countries with relatively few resources, poor countries, can have better food security than wealthy countries when they recognize the right to food. Brazil was an outstanding example. It was an early adopter of many different policies that brought food into being a human right instead of simply a commodity. And some of those policies have been eroded under the current administration in Brazil, but some of them have stayed in place because people in Brazil know that food is one of their human rights and they refuse to accept that right being taken away. It was a whole package of policies, things like ensuring that every child in school had a nutritious, healthy lunch every day, ensuring that farmers who were poor themselves were able to provide the food to those schools to make those healthy lunches ensuring that poor farmers had access to good markets in cities ensuring that there were places in cities where anyone could go and get a good lunch at a, a low price So it was a whole package of policies. One of the most effective was providing um, a cash payment to families that were low income so that they could buy the food that they wanted and needed. Not providing a food box, but a cash payment so that they had control over the food that they were
0: buying. So there was a whole sort of national strategy to deliver that directive of, of food security and food as a human right. Exactly. The CFS
1: has a similar prism. Everything has to be considered through the right to food. The right to food must be the basis of all the policies that are enacted or that are served up in guidelines or recommendations of the Committee on World Food Security.
0: Jennifer, we're talking about science and policy in the way that it interfaces today, but let's go back to science for a moment. There's an idea, I think, in society at large, and I, I keep hearing this from you know, broadcast journalists, for example, in one way or another, that somehow how science is benign, but the science community is just as rife with ego and politics and competition as any other sector. And often whether your research makes an impact or not is down to personality, connections, or even communications budget. So in your view, how should policymakers interact with science to ensure that they're making better decisions based on the best available information?
2: Yes. Well, Finlo, you're right that many people do think of science as being intrinsically objective and holding the, uh, the truth in air quotes, uh, which gives it weight and legitimacy, but a lot of work has to go into science to enable it to live up to that reputation. And that includes uh, rigorous scientific review processes and other ways to verify knowledge. Uh, But you're absolutely right that politics, egos and economic interests can definitely infiltrate the process. And I I would argue that that's why transparency and inclusivity are so important in the scientific assessment process, that's geared towards policymakers, so that if politics and interests do start to influence the scientific process, it will become evident and the course can be corrected. Because we don't want, you know, we don't want to be anti-science, but we need to recognize that science itself can be subject to conflicts of interest. So the knowledge that informs policymakers, it really needs to be credible to be legitimate. But at the same time, the process of assessment of that knowledge on any given topic, it has to be legitimate in order for the information to be credible. So I know they're sort of tightly linked there, but the process has to be open and transparent to give it that legitimacy, which in turn gives it that credibility.
0: Thank you. We're coming to the end of the programme. And Molly, I want to give you a magic wand. Uh, If you could change one thing about the Food Systems Summit and its processes, what would it be? That's a big question. The one thing I would
1: love to see is for the organizers of the summit to say, we made some big mistakes and we want to start over. We understand now that given the way we set this summit up, it could never be a people summit, which was what we kept trying to call it over and over. We want to start over with the people who haven't been well served by food systems, the people who are hungry, whose land has been stolen, whose rights have been abused and violated. And we want to convene consultations with them in which they have the ability to design the summit. The ability to design their own solutions to their problems and to produce their own food and to have control over their food systems we will start by going to the places where social movements already come together, such as the Civil Society and Indigenous Peoples Mechanism of the Committee on World Food Security, which brings together 380 million representatives of people's organizations and which, by the way, refused to participate in the Food Summit because they didn't see it as being legitimate. Then we'll try to figure out how to finance and how to actually implement these ideas that come from the poorest people, understanding that SDG 2 can only be met if poor people design the solutions and have agency and control over their own food systems, what's been called food sovereignty. The summit is unlikely to solve the problems in the food system because its organizers aren't looking at the root causes of power inequities, excessive corporate control, racism, colonization, exploitation. So we want to start over and we'll go back to the poorest people for the
0: solutions. So you want to take it down, go back to scratch, and instead of having a food system summit which is designed by those who are already winning in the food system that we have, actually start designing it from the bottom up from those people who are currently losing out. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, if that was a big question, here's a bigger question, Jennifer, because just finally I'm going to pass that magic wand to you, and gloriously I'm going to give you greater powers. So if you could use the wand to change just one thing about the global food system as it stands today but only one thing what would you change
2: wow that's that's a really tough question because there are so many aspects of the food system that do need changing but i'll draw on my own expertise and yeah research, i'm a mean genie
0: will... i'm just giving you yeah. one
2: wish just one <laughs> one wish, wish. <laughs> Yeah, well, Molly and I are a bit tricky with our wishes because we we try to pick the things that will change multiple things. But, but for my own research, I focus on corporate power uh, in the food system. And I would say that concentrated power in the hands of few corporate powerful actors really breeds inequities in food systems that are at the root of so many problems. And so for me, if I could wave that magic wand, I would like to really rein in that corporate power and make food systems more equitable so that the hundreds of millions of small-scale farmers farmers farmers, and food system workers, who are currently disadvantaged in the dominant industrial food system, so that they can exercise what is their rightful agency and voice to shape food systems to uh, basically meet their own needs and secure their own livelihoods and to make food systems more sustainable. If we have that kind of equity and give people the agency and, and the right to do so. That will really make a big difference in terms of shaping food systems to be more sustainable and equitable.
0: That's fantastic. It's been so interesting to spend that time with you. You both have so much knowledge and passion and humanity. But that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Molly Anderson and Jennifer Clapp from IPES Food. IPes Food's reports, including their reports on the Food Systems Summit, can be found on their website, ipes-food.org. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. FarmGate is a partnership project for FarmWell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa, and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlo Castain Bye for now.